0: This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare, one play at a time. Today, the play that might have had a better fate if Shakespeare called it Richard III, Part One. It's Henry the Sixth, Part Three. Look where the sturdy rebel sits, even in the chair of state belike he means, backed by the power of Warwick, that false peer. To aspire unto the crown and reign as king. Here comes the queen, whose looks betray her anger, I'll steal away. Oh, wretched man, would I had died a maid and never seen thee, never born thee, son! Now, brother Richard, Lord Hastings, and the rest, yet thus far fortune maketh us amends, and says that once more I shall interchange my waned state for Henry's regal crown. Where's Richard gone? To London, all in post, and, as I guess, to make a bloody supper in the town. Hard-favoured Richard. Richard! Where art thou? Victory for York, and victory for Edward. Now Duke of York, soon to be a king. Would he were wasted, marrow, bones, and all, that from his loins no hopeful branch may spring to cross me from the golden time I look for. Okay, so as always I'm going to give you a summary because I'm pretty sure you didn't read this play in school. This is Henry VI Part Three, in one minute. Let's start the timer and go. Rebellion has taken over England, the King is missing, and the Duke of York has seized the throne. Henry, returning to the palace, strikes a deal that sees him keep the crown but surrender his bloodline. The Duke of York, or his heirs, will succeed Henry upon his death. Queen Margaret, furious that Henry has disinherited their son, gets an army and murders the Duke of York, which sets the Duke's sons, including the future Richard III, on the path to revenge. Another round of battles ensue, any with Margaret getting captured, and Henry VI running off into the woods. He's quickly discovered and imprisoned in the Tower of London, while England crowns a new king. king. Edward IV. Edward plans to marry the French king's sister-in-law and ally himself with France, but instead he marries Elizabeth Woodville, which angers the Earl of Warwick who switches sides and allies himself with Henry. They retake the throne, but it is short-lived and before long, Edward is king, Margaret's son is murdered before her eyes, and Henry is killed by Richard, who informs the audience that he is planning to kill others as well because he will do anything to ensure that he gets the crown. Henry VI Part III might have had a better fate if Shakespeare had called it Richard III Part I. Although Richard III has become one of the more popular plays in the canon, it is a far more rewarding work when one studies it in relation to Henry VI Part III, for it is here that Richard speaks to the audience for the first time, almost as if Shakespeare wanted him to announce his greatness for himself. Only half of this play belongs to Richard, however. The other half is solely the property of Queen Margaret. Margaret will not survive the play intact, but her destruction is only partially at the hands of Richard and his brothers. Margaret's great tragedy is that when England falls around her, she has no one but herself to blame. As the new play opens, Henry VI admits what his father and grandfather would not, that he may not deserve the crown that sits upon his head. Why feint you lords, my title's good and better father than his. Prove it, Henry, and thou shalt be king. Henry IV, by conquest, got the crown. T'was by rebellion against his king. I know not what to say, my title's weak. Henry strikes a deal that allows him to keep the crown and save England. Now, it is popular to portray Henry as ineffectual, but the truth is Henry was simply made of different stuff than his father, grandfather, and, for that matter, most of the men in medieval England. Henry IV put down several rebellions, and Henry V was the ultimate warrior king. But Henry VI has no interest in war. Ironically, he has much in common with Richard II, the king Henry's grandfather deposed. Richard II surrendered his crown peacefully because he too was not one to pick up a sword. Henry VI also was reluctant to take up arms. His father, remember, was the one who, one St. Crispin's Day not too long before, roused his soldiers to glory. But Henry VI is a philosopher who, upon witnessing war, isn't afraid. To acknowledge its costs. Whilst lions war and battle for their dens, poor harmless lambs abide their enmity. Weep, wretched man, I'll aid thee tear for tear. And let our hearts and eyes, like civil war, be blind with tears and break or charged with grief. In Shakespeare's interpretation, Henry VI and Richard II were both diplomat kings in an age when diplomacy was a four-letter word, but there's also a possible secondary motivation to Henry's actions. In the last play, remember, Henry VI revealed that he may not be as dim-witted as we have always been led to believe. He knows that Queen Margaret was unfaithful and sees that treachery extend beyond his marriage. Henry knows that Margaret portrayed him with the Duke of Suffolk, Does he doubt the child's parentage? Is he avenging his own battered honor? Shakespeare doesn't tell us, but it makes for an intriguing question that the actor who plays Henry VI should probably consider. Margaret, of course, is still the proto-Lady Macbeth of this world, and she doesn't accept the disinheriting of her flesh and blood. Within a heartbeat, that is the breath between scene 1 and scene 2, she gathers an army of her own and besieges the Duke of York. Here are more echoes of Henry VI Part II, which many the rabbit editor have stolen away. In Henry VI Part II, Margaret's efforts to consolidate her power leads to the death of the Duke of Gloucester, Suffolk's exile, and her own loss of influence on the king. It's classic irony. By attempting to gain power, she sets into motion the events that cause her to lose it. In Henry VI Part Three, she does it again. Henry VI has brought peace to England. If Margaret had left it alone, Henry would have remained king for who knows how many years. Instead, she decides to poke the bear. Or, rather, she decides to kill it. Here's for my oath. Here's for my father's death. And Here's to right our gentle-hearted king! Off with his head and set it on York gates. I've said before that Margaret and the future Richard III are two sides of the same coin. In another world, they'd be perfect mates. Both are vengeful and full of wrath. The Duke of York's great attack on Margaret before his death could easily be a prophecy about his own son. But that thy face is vizard-like, unchanging, made impudent with use of evil deeds, I would say, proud queen to make thee blush. To tell thee whence thou camest, of whom was shame, the shame thee, wert thou not shameless. Until now, much of the machinations of the Henry VI plays have involved arguments over the divine right of kings and who truly deserves the crown. Lacking in main characters, Henry VI Part 1 and part 2 are ensemble plays that are centered around an idea, power, and rebellion. In Henry VI Part 3, however, Shakespeare finally realizes the value in narrowing his scope, and presenting history through the eyes of a single character. In this play, the events of the first two acts are about more than just regurgitating events on the historical timeline. The death of the Duke of York at Margaret's hands becomes a crucial event, for not only does it spur Richard and his brothers towards their final assault on the crown, but it gives them personal reasons for doing so. When the play Richard III is performed alone, it is a story of mad ambition. But when it is read in connection with Henry VI Part III, we see that Shakespeare's true theme was impassioned revenge. That, as we shall find out when we discuss Richard III, is what that play is all about. This play isn't the last time we'll see Margaret, but it is the last time she'll be the she-wolf of France. The wolf in her does not survive the trip into the next play. From a theatrical standpoint, there are few scenes in Shakespeare more delightful than the ones where Richard and Margaret trade barbs. Here are two wolves, and they are going at each other's throats, but only one of them still has its teeth. Margaret's appearance in Richard III is little more than an extended cameo, for by the end of Henry VI Part III, her husband is dead, her son is murdered, and even she seems to know that her time has come. Away with her! Go! Bear her hands perforce! Nay, never! Bear me hands! Dispatch me here! Here, sheath thy sword! I'll pardon thee my death. What wilt thou not? Then, Clarence, do it thou! Now, I'm not sure if any producers have ever dared to edit the three Henry the Six plays to refocus the story entirely on Margaret's rise and downfall, but it would be glorious if someone tried. In Margaret, Shakespeare creates a unique female character, a schemer who orchestrates her own end. Margaret's machinations are central to the creation of Richard III, but also to the very question that Shakespeare was using all of these history plays to ask, who has the right to wear the crown? Henry VI and the Duke of York both argue about bloodlines and divine right, but Richard and Margaret seem to have different answers that the crown should go to whoever is strong enough or smart enough to keep it on their heads. Margaret is the crucial centerpiece to this trilogy of plays that are only ostensibly about the king she married. In Henry VI Part One, she makes men fall in love with her at sight. By the time she ends Henry VI Part Three, she is good for nothing but haunting the stage now margaret is not a heroine anyone should emulate but she is all too human and full of an ambition and intellect that rivals any of the men she encounters as a creation she stands among the great shakespearean women most critics most male critics, I might want to add, tend to discount Margaret, and I'm tempted to suggest it's because as a character, she gets the better of almost every man she meets. But you know what? Let's give those male critics the benefit of the doubt. The larger problem is that she is a good character trapped in a bunch of bad plays. Margaret is probably not examined as closely as she deserves to be because she's in a series of plays that are also not examined as closely as maybe they deserve to be. Famed heroines like Rosalind and Juliet had the good fortune of being great characters in greater plays, which is why they are remembered and poor Margaret, more often than not, is either forgotten or ignored. Shakespeare's is still a young playwright, circa 1591, but he's learning fast, and unlike its predecessors, there are very few needless scenes in Henry VI Part Three. Yes, yes, there's a really lengthy setup involving Edward's seduction of Elizabeth Woodville, but as this is ultimately important to the plot, it's a nuisance more because it's a long scene about characters we don't really care about. The Crown changes hands a few too many times, but that's history's fault, not Shakespeare's, and while a lot of soldiers, generals, and messengers come back and forth, the play nonetheless feels surprisingly focused. Shakespeare knew how this play had to end after all, so there could be no more stalling for time. The story moves quickly, despite having both the most battle scenes and the longest soliloquy in the entire canon. Now, that long soliloquy belongs, of course, to Richard, who speaks to us for the first time. These days, the soliloquy has become a cliché, drumming up thoughts of Hamlet wandering Elsinore as he wonders whether it's better to be or not to be. But in Henry VI Part Three, the moment is an electric one. Shakespeare, remember, was writing for an audience who knew who Richard was. There was no point in trying to pretend Richard was anything but a villain. Why, I can smile and murder whilst I smile and cry content to that which grieves my heart and wet my cheeks with artificial tears and frame my face to all occasions. I'll drown more sailors than the mermaid shall. The soliloquy was Shakespeare's solution to the problem of exciting an audience who already knew how the story they were watching was going to end. Richard brings the audience into his confidence, and in doing so, Shakespeare anticipated a genre that wouldn't be popular for hundreds of years. Henry VI Part III and Richard III are both the Elizabeth equivalents of all those modern crime dramas that put the serial killer in the spotlight. You know what I did, Richard is telling the audience but now I'm gonna tell you how it was all done. The first thing Richard does, of course, is kill Henry VI, and there's something delightful in the confrontation. Henry VI talks and talks, he even gives a prophecy, but Richard, perhaps knowing his audience is growing restless at the two and a half hour mark, grows bored with the chatter and interrupts the king in his final moment. Teeth hadst thou in thy head when thou wast born to signify thou camest to bite the world, and if the rest be true which I have heard, thou cam- I'll hear no more. Die prophet in thy speech, for this amongst the rest was I ordained. And so Henry the Sixth dies, and Richard tells us that others will come. He's just biding his time. As with the last three plays, Henry the Sixth ends on a cliffhanger. At the end of Henry VI Part 1, the audience knows something that Henry VI does not, that Margaret is plotting with the Duke of Suffolk. Here we have a similar bit of dramatic irony, for we know what Edward, the new king, does not, that Richard is plotting against him. This manner of connecting Margaret and Richard is a bit of playwriting flourish, but it also signifies that Shakespeare was starting to understand what, or rather who, his plays were really about. This is probably why the last play in the Henriette, Richard III, remained so popular right up to the present day. The Henry VI plays can be a bit of a slog, but they remain rewarding, both for the presentation of Queen Margaret and, more importantly, because they were a playground on which Shakespeare was able to learn what he needed to know in order to write The Tragedy of Richard III, which, in the history of the canon, is Shakespeare's first truly great play. And that comes the part of the podcast where I recommend filmed versions of the play I've discussed. I've mentioned the problem with trying to find filmed versions of the Henry VI plays in the other episodes, and there's really nothing new to report when it comes to Henry VI Part Three. You have the bbc television version from 1983 which i don't like you have the truncated version that was part of the age of kings in 1960 which i do like and the radio drama from archangel shakespeare which i love now i've also mentioned the hollow crown the 2016 bbc miniseries but so far i haven't gone into it in any depth other than to rave about sophie Okonedo's performance of margaret Directed by Dominic Cooke, the show's depiction of Henry VI Part Three, does the play justice. The series cuts up Henry VI Part I and II a little too much for my taste, allowing them to spotlight Margaret and Richard's dual quest for power. Now, Richard, of course, is played by Benedict Cumberbatch, so it's no wonder that they were happy to give him as many great moments as they could. Cumberbatch and Oconito own this film, but it's really important to add that the rest of the cast is an army of England's finest, and they do really well with the script, and while they cut down the text, they always manage to retain its heart. No, no, it's not the complete script, but only the purists will complain, and since I am a purist, I'm only going to complain about it in dulcet tones. So if you really want to get a good sense of what Henry VI Part 3 is all about, The Hollow Crown Episode 2 is your best bet. If you still feel the need after that to experience the show full and uncut, you can go back to the Archangel recording. Of course, as always, I'm going to leave links to everything on the show page. Well, that's it for Richard the Third, Part 1. Oh, sorry, I mean Henry VI Part 3. Next up, we conclude the Henriad with the real Richard III, which, as I've said, I consider to be Shakespeare's first truly great play. Until then, you can subscribe, rate, and review this podcast in the iTunes store and send me comments by visiting the show's website at www.joelfishbane.net slash Shakespeare Unbarred. That's all one word. While you're there, why not check out what else I do with my time? You know, you can find links to my other work, download my short fiction, and if you can find out about my novel, The Thunder of Giants, a book about two eight-foot-tall women struggling to survive in a world too small to contain them. It's available now from St. Martin's Press. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare Unbarred five plays down 33 to go ah gentle villain do not turn away thou wrinkled witch what makes thou in my sight but repetition of what thou hast marred that will i make before i let thee go Would thou not banished on pain of death i was but i do find more pain in banishment than death can yield me here by my abode will shakespeare as a play let's go and (laughs) cough through it